Welcome to the Subtle Cane Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Smith, broadcasting from the Aorta of America, beautiful festival city, Oshkosh, Wisconsin, where we pump out reason and pierce through the propaganda. Here we go. Welcome back, my friends. If this is your first time with the Subtle Cane Podcast, thank you for gracing us with your virtual presence. If you are a returning listener, thank you for your continued support. It is much appreciated. This is episode 14 of the Subtle Cane Podcast. Give a little bit. I admit that I've been somewhat single-minded as of late, and the focus of the podcast has largely reflected our current circumstances. Now I stand by what I've chosen to discuss, and I think it's important to address issues that impact our lives now, but I do also accept that there are more timeless aspects of our lives that need to be addressed as well. I'll be honest, I've been working pretty hard to get through the material about crowd psychology and the mass formation topic, and I've kind of abandoned other avenues of research for the last several weeks, for the most part. And it, it, it has me feeling a little bit like a one-trick pony. But in lieu of that fact, I have resolved myself to make this more of an, an off-the-cuff episode. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this before, but I work at an emergency shelter for people experiencing homelessness. And being located in Wisconsin, this can be a particularly difficult task at times. I mean, we often have more people at the door when we open for the night than beds to offer. This results in a lottery system of sorts that allows for impartial selection of candidates for beds. Those unfortunate enough to draw a higher number, well, they find themselves in the unenviable position of being handed a meal and a sleeping bag for the night. Now, if you've ever spent any time in Wisconsin in the winter, you know that this is quite literally is, a potential life or death situation. And yes, that is sad. And yes, it is unfortunate. But if we allow more people in than we're licensed to, it jeopardizes the entire organization losing its license and going from some beds to no beds. Why do I bring this up? I'm kind of asking myself that now. I think, I think it is because even though that this is a terrible thing to contemplate, and quite frankly, a terrible thing to have to do when we turn people away, I wanted to share some uplifting news that corresponds to this harsh reality. You know, we look around and, and we do, we see people acting indifferently, and we hear about all the suffering of the world so often. And All you got to do is turn on the news or, or try to follow the abomination that is a Twitter conversation, and you can really feel the hope starting to drain from you. But I've been blessed to see some amazing things happen through this experience. Some of our guests are really not physically well. When I say not well, I mean people that are in such bad physical shape that I, I wonder how they even got themselves to the doors. It honestly baffles the mind to think what people can endure, what people do endure. We're comfortable in the U.S. We are. Most of us are more worried about losing weight than starving. Most of us 
are more worried about what people think of us than what they will do to us. Not true in much of the world. But we do have people that have hardship, whether they brought it on themselves or it is a condition that was outside of their control. We do have many people that are living in quite severe hardship in America as well. Well, when we do this lineup and lottery system, it falls on all in the line to take the risk of being turned away. And what happens next? What happens next? It, it gets me every time. You see, when one of these more frail individuals pulls a higher number and does not make the cut for the night, I see people who have been out in the cold, often hungry and exhausted, I see them walk over to the unfortunate soul who has realized they will have no warm bed for the night, and I see them trade numbers with them. I see people give up their beds. Again, I cannot overemphasize the hardship a night on the street in Wisconsin winter weather involves. It really can be life or death. And these people who have nothing just hand over the one chance they had at comfort for the night to another, and they walk off into bitter cold and who knows what fate. How beautiful is that? How humbling is that to hear? How strange is it that a nation of such utter affluence to know that there are so many that live in these conditions? And I can tell you that at times when I see people do that, it, it almost shames me to think of how selfish I can be. But it bolsters my faith as well. It bolsters my faith and it also heals me. Because it shows me that the petty things we find ourselves arguing about so often are meaningless in the light of the divine ability to sacrifice. It reminds me that though there may be tyrants and demagogues, liars and schemers that are willing to do anything to get ahead and gain wealth and control over others, it reminds me that there are many who are not that way. I've always said, if you want to see some miserable people, go to a really expensive restaurant. Oh, you'll see them. They'll be the ones never satisfied with the food. It's never good enough. Nothing's ever good enough. No one is ever good enough for them. But don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I'm not making a case for the nobility of poverty or the denigration of wealth. I share this as a testimony to the ability of people to put others ahead of themselves, even when it really hurts. After all, money is not the root of all evil. It is the love of money and the love of money above all else. I know, I know wealthy people who have no such problem. They're very generous, and they, they are the reason we have places like my shelter and many other organizations that help those in need. We are a generous people, and wealth is not inherently bad, nor is it inherently good, apart from removing some of the hardships we face as humans trying to survive. I will say, in my observation of life, that Affluence is a rich soil for indifference to human suffering in others, especially, especially unearned affluence. And there is a difference. Of course, constant exposure to human suffering is also fertile ground for indifference. 
I'm dating myself here, but the finale of Seinfeld pointed this out in usual satirical fashion as the desensitized New Yorkers shocked the small-town people with their callous indifference to the plight of others. They were so conditioned by their overpopulated environment that when they saw someone in need, it was completely natural for them to assume it was someone else's responsibility and had nothing to do with them. Don't we all kind of do that in our own ways, though? That homeless panhandler who's always at the quick trip or the neighbors down the street who are always screaming at each other and having the cops drag one of them away. Or maybe, maybe it's just that depressed-looking girl at work who makes comments about killing herself or that she'd be better off dead. Someone else will deal with that, we tell ourselves. I have my own problems. I can't fix everyone else's. And we can't. We, we can't fix everyone else's. But we, and I emphasize we, probably could do more than we are. We probably would be surprised about how much we can actually do. I suppose this is a conversation about meaning. I will note that what scientism, technocracy, and stoic materialism lack is a foundation for meaning. I have stated before, if life is the product of some cosmic jackpot, some incalculable happenstance, then I truly do wonder what basis we claim. On what basis do we claim one thing to be right and one thing to be wrong? Something to think about. And this is where we get into systems of belief about what is, what should be, and what we should do about what should be. Is there a universal standard that exists outside of our own creation? If not, well then who gets to decide what the system is? This has been, of course, tormenting philosophers, theologians, and thinkers for all of recorded human history. It's not a new line of inquiry. I, personally, as a Christ follower, have faith that there exists a moral standard that transcends human creation. But I have no incontrovertible empirical evidence. It's faith. And this wanders into the territory of apologetics, I suppose. But first, let us ponder some more on the questions before we even deliberate on the answers. Jordan Peterson, in his new book, Maps of Meaning, says that we need to know four things to start contemplating questions of meaning. One, what there is. Two, what to do about what there is. Three, that there is a difference between knowing what there is and what to do about what there is, and four, knowing what that difference is. So we need to understand what is, uh, and this is the realm of empirical evidence and investigation. This is where science has served us quite well in our society. We have formulated systems by which we observe, calculate, and estimate the conditions of our environment in ways that have greatly increased our ability to operate in large-scale coordination, and adept specialization. But not only do we need to know what we can measure, evaluate, and manipulate in the physical world, we also need to be able to understand the significance of what is, and then subsequently know what to do about what is. 
and this is more the realm of narrative and myth. The religions and philosophies of the world tackle this problem in various ways. There are themes that transcend geography, culture, religion, and history. Joseph Campbell studied comparative mythology and comparative religion and found common threads that unified the human narrative. Carl Jung believed that there was a collective unconscious and proposed a concept known as synchronicity. C.S. Lewis spoke of the common threads as good dreams that God had given us. Some Eastern religions suggest a universal truth, and in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul spoke of all men having eternity placed in their hearts so that we are without excuse. The point I'm making is this. Scientism and strictly materialistic perspectives do not meet the third qualification of knowing that there is a difference between what there is and what to do about what is. This, that is a fatal flaw in my estimation. Not knowing what that difference is, is also a fatal flaw. If you remember, I spoke about the difference between images and language and how we think. There is a spectrum of consciousness within which we process the world around us. When we think in images, we are perceiving the world through the lens of emotion. When we think in language, we are thinking about the world through the lens of ideas. Mirlu tells us that there's a polarity between these two forms of cogitation that can tilt too far in either direction and cause us to err on the side of cold calculation or manic passion. Peterson makes a similar bifurcation of thought, but categorizes the spectrum by distinguishing between the representative and the objective with a similar outcome. The representative being our narratives and myths or what we tell ourselves about what is. The objective being the actual classification and experimentation with what is. And in both cases, it isn't a simplified binary approach one might initially presume. As individuals, we are all unique in our perceptions, and so think of it more like a spectrum. Now, do we err on the side of cold, unfeeling logic, or do we err on the side of fantastical myth? Well, perhaps, perhaps we should be aiming for the center here. Like riding a bicycle, a little too much lean in either direction can cause a nasty spill. Something to consider. As we take a short break, I hope that you've been enjoying the show. I, I want you to know that I value your time, and I am trying to create v valuable material. You will notice that there are no ads. No ads. No obnoxious attempts to persuade you to buy products you probably don't need. No manipulative messaging to entice you into actions you would not otherwise take. That is because I am operating on the value-for-value value system. If you believe that I have provided value, well, I humbly request that you consider returning value in the form of a contribution of some sort. You can become a producer of the Subtle Cane Podcast by donating your time, talent, or treasure. And yes, I cribbed that line from the No Agenda Podcast, but it succinctly states the case. There are links in the show notes for my Venmo, PayPal, and Patreon pages. And I'm happy to report that the Subtle Cane Podcast has received a donation of 
$50 from Clan Carney of Wisconsin. Bravo. I am, I really, I am so grateful. Thank you so much. And it, it really helps so much with the cost of being hosted and also the double espressos that I drink while I happily do my research. Thank you, Clan Carney. You are executive producers for that contribution. Very generous. Now, you can donate any amount. It really, anything's appreciated. There's no minimum or maximum. I would also encourage you to consider contributing art or music, if if that's your thing. And I'd like to acknowledge Pete G for providing me links to more research than I can keep up with. Pete G is also a producer of the show, and the the research has been very valuable. and And I have I've been able to find resources I didn't even know existed. So thank you so much. He's an excellent supporter of the show. And also one more shout out to Chip, who has been a loyal producer, who has provided me with valuable feedback, which helps me continue the mission. He's always encouraging me. Now that's the spiel and we return to our regularly scheduled program. I often refer to the two-edged sword of technology. For every gift it gives, a price is paid. The many advancements we've made through the application of the scientific method have altered our understanding of the natural world in ways that have enriched our lives and allowed us to ward off disease, famine, and pestilence to a great degree, although obviously not completely. It has bridged the gap in our ability to store and retrieve vast amounts of information, and it has helped us create vast systems of interdependence that exponentially increase our individual capabilities. Just amazing. But in our passionate embrace for empirical truth and objective, reproducible outcomes, have we abandoned entirely the other side of the spectrum? Some have, at least in word. And it is true. Think about this. It's true that some still live in a world of primitive gods and scientific ignorance, as our forefathers did. Not so many now, as technology has broken down the barriers of time and space for communication. But there are indigenous peoples who still have no real engagement with the modern world. And we scoff at them from our pedestals of borrowed knowledge. We feel sorry for them because they believe that the tree spirits made their child sick or the crippled have been cursed by the gods. But I wonder, would they scoff at us for believing that people are just biological machines with no other purpose than to pursue pleasure, possessions, and position? I wonder what their rates of depression and suicide are, or addiction and despair. Isn't that worth pondering? I think so. Now, I've asked some questions and proposed some theories today about meaning, as a lack of meaning is one of the conditions for the mass formation we discussed in the last two episodes. I thought it appropriate to start tackling this issue. Today wasn't necessarily as planned out as usual or structured, but I'll admit that when I sat down and started talking and writing my way through some of this material, well, the direction just sort of came organically. And I, and I love that about being able to do this. I really hope it benefits you as well. I'm going to transition here. I challenge you all this week. Find one thing. Find one thing that you can do 
to help another that causes you some inconvenience. I'm not saying that you should derail your life in some grand gesture, but find one cause you can donate to or one charity you can sign up for or volunteer at. Maybe there's someone you know who's in need of something you can provide. Maybe, maybe you can just take a couple extra minutes to say hi to someone who looks lonely. It doesn't have to be anything huge. Intentionally seek out one opportunity above and beyond what you are already doing. As I do not mean to suggest you're not already charitable people. That's not the point. The challenge is simply this. Do one more thing for someone else. It may seem small, and maybe I sound idealistic, but as I shared in the beginning of this episode, I see people who have nothing but a bed for the night and the clothes on their backs give up that bed and walk off into bitter cold and uncertainty. And if they can do that, if they can do that, what can we do? I know, I know that despite all our flaws and our shortcomings, that we are capable of great kindness. Yes, yes, there are many in this world who would seek to hurt you or control you, but we can be better. If we are to navigate the complexities of this changing paradigm, this ever-changing paradigm, if we are to retain our dignity amidst the rising tide of indifferent technocrats, we must reestablish what it means to have communities. If we are to stand up to the calculating clergy of scientism, we must reinvigorate that part of us where myth dwells and meaning resides. The imbalance between the representative and the objective must be restored. So I ask you to ask yourself, what is the foundation of your moral framework? On what cornerstone is the edifice of your meaning built? I end with a quote by a Russian philosopher that I am reading named Nikolai Berdyaev. Quote, Every single human soul has more meaning and value than the whole of history. End quote. For all you listening, you are valued, you are loved, and you are worthy. God bless and good night. Lack of fear as a world I love turns to ashes 